I have. I don't think I have ever felt that old. Uh, I am. Uh, I, th- I guess I'm the only guy from Louisiana here, and some of you guys out west. I'm not sure that uh, it's as easy to. Uh, well, that Mike's from down there, Michael Rose. That's right. This he'll appreciate this. I'm going to read a news article from down south because it'll give you a feeling of uh, the difference between different areas of the country and the kind of and the area that I come from. This is a right out of the newspaper. Orville Smith, store manager for the Best Buy in Covington, Louisiana, told police he observed a male customer on surveillance cameras putting a laptop computer under his jacket. When confronted, the man became irate, knocked down an employee, drew a knife, and ran for the door. Outside on the sidewalk were four Marines collecting Toys for Tots for the Toys for Tots program. Smith said the Marines stopped the man, but he stabbed one of the Marines, Corporal Philip Dugan, in the back, the injury did not appear to be severe. After police and an ambulance arrived at the scene, Corporal Dugan was transported for treatment. The subject was also transported for treatment to a local hospital with two broken arms, a broken ankle, a broken leg, several missing teeth, possible broken ribs, multiple contusions or sore lacerations, a broken nose, a broken jaw, injuries he sustained when he slipped and fell from the curb after stabbing the Marine, according to the police report. See? Now, no one down our way would ever question that. You know, that's exactly what happened. Now, um, yeah, I've got a, um, uh, a different kind of a topic. And so let me open us in prayer. We'll dive in. Father, we do uh, thank you that uh, we don't have to wonder what you're like. You tell us. I pray we would tremble at your word. And we, t- we would, more importantly, Lord, take you at your word. As we look at this important topic, in Christ's name, amen. Two general observations. Uh, First, you can pick up some knowledge about God from creation and from just hanging around and talking to people. But about all you can pick up that way is that he's very wise. He's got a divine nature and he's eternally powerful. You can look at the skies and see that. But that's about it. The only reliable source of information about God comes from this book. And by the way, you want to know why I also felt old? I got out of that back row and I said, where are their Bibles? And everybody's bringing their cell phone into a meeting. Then as soon as somebody said verse, all of a sudden light up. They all light up and I forget they have Bibles on those things now. It's, a, uh, it's very different when you get older, I can promise you. Everything changes. But uh, the second point is that we have a tremendous ability to oversimplify God and try to make Him manageable. Because uh, when you think of a Creator God, um, even the idea of it is frightening to us. So you, uh, you you put those two things together and we have a problem. And I'm going to suggest that the American church uh, has so overemphasized and distorted God's grace, His goodness, His love, and His forgiveness that we, uh, we end up with a, with a God who wants to fix our problems, but we have no earthly idea where they all came from and why we're facing them. And uh, whenever someone comes and talks about fearing God or the importance of obedience uh, in places I've been, 
people go into apoplexy. And they began to say, you're forgetting about His grace. You, you're not, you, need, you, you forgot about His forgiveness. And um, it's interesting that it never goes the other way. And so let me begin this by saying that God loves you. That God is good. That God showers you with His grace. That you can't earn your salvation and you can't lose it. And God wants His obedient children to have assurance of salvation. Okay, so that's on the table. So let's relax. And by the way, in your walk with God, you should be motivated by your love for Him, by a sincere desire to know Him better and to please Him because of what He's done for you through Jesus. That you should want to pursue Him and you should find Him naturally fascinating. And also you should be motivated by heavenly rewards. The fact that He says He makes it worth your while. So let's relax and let's talk for a while about fearing God. Now, if you want to turn to your cell phones to Philippians 2.12. And Paul says this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you know about that passage, you want to say, excuse me? I mean, what happened here? Because if you turn to Philippians 2.1 and read the first couple of verses, listen to this stuff. Now, this is the good stuff. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation and love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I mean, we're soaring. And then all of a sudden, thud, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have an expression in our, down south. That's like a turd in a punch bowl. I mean... It's an uninvited guest to the wedding. What are they doing here? I mean, you've got love. You've got purpose. All these higher motivations. And then the idea that this God who would die for you wants to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Talk about ruin the moment, Paul. I mean, you, you were rolling there. Isn't fear kind of a base, lower emotion? I mean... It's crass. It's kind of unsophisticated. And worse, it makes you a little uncomfortable. It's almost scary. Scared of God? It's really beneath us. I mean, we love God. We're brimming with gratitude. We're not going to fear Him. We don't, we don't want to sink to that. It's for an earlier age. I mean, you might start off fearing God, but don't you get past that? So, by the way, how could you insult God by being scared of Him? He longs for us to draw near to Him, doesn't He? Jesus died for us. He's our advocate. What about the greatest of these is love? I mean, that's, Now, there's something worth thinking about. It's almost like a sign at a beautiful resort. Warning, do not relax here. It's not respect. There's a different Greek word for that. 
It's not reverence. There's another Greek word for that. Very different from fear. It's honest to goodness, knee-knocking, stomach-turning terror. That's what the word means. It makes God unmanageable. What I don't understand is fear of people, fear of circumstances, fear of the economy. I mean, that comes naturally. I don't have to work at that. It's right there. But the problem is, a biblical fear of God just doesn't come naturally. Romans 3.18 says, in describing the lost man, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Ecclesiastes 8.13 puts it this way, the wicked don't fear God. See, not fearing God is a characteristic of a lost person, not a Christian. And Jesus, who had a pretty good way of poking his finger in our theological eye, made it clear that the 58 times the Bible admonishes us not to be afraid, never refer to God. Always refer to circumstances. It's just the opposite, in fact. He says the two are mutually exclusive. In Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. I mean, that sounds pretty serious. <laughs> you know, if you... He says, no, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. One, it's a command. And two, he's clearly not talking about respect. In Hebrews 10, 31, it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. First Peter puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 17. And if you address as father... I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Yet people say over and over again, and I've heard them, I've been places where they say, God doesn't want us to fear him. Or they try to bury it in the fine print. Or say that, or say that it refers. I've had people say, well, no, that really should be translated. That word fear really means respect. I'm going to tell you something, guys. That takes a lot of gall to change the word that God uses. And Jesus is not talking about respect when he's talking about killing people and throwing them into hell. Fear is actually a natural part of most relationship relationships. And it benefits us in a lot of different ways. And I want to just go through some verses to see how God uses the word and the, the, the kinds of things that he uses the word with. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh, spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What it's saying is that the fear of God is a tool, is important if you want to become holy, if you want to be obedient, if you want to become undefiled. Genesis twenty two twelve, in describing Abraham just as he's about to slay Isaac, when the angel stays his hand, says this. The angel says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you're not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, some commands can only be obeyed if you fear God. And that's what that test was all about for Abraham. Deuteronomy says, Therefore, 
You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. People don't obey God because they don't fear Him. And He wants us to obey Him. Acts 9.31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it continued to increase. Fear and comfort... Those are supernatural bedfellows. They don't, fit, they don't seem to fit together, but they do. And interestingly, it's an aid to evangelism. When people can tell that you're afraid of God. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. You better be fearing God if you expect to be rescued by him, according to that verse. Psalm 130, verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Fear and forgiveness together in the same verse. First Samuel twelve twenty four. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth and with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear God as you consider the great things he's done for you. They ought to make you scared. It's Deuteronomy six thirteen. You'll sh- you shall fear only the Lord your God. Fear anything else but God and a little warning light ought to go off in your head that there's a problem. Because the fear of God eliminates other fears. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but that you fear the Lord your God and walk in all of His ways and love Him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Fear and love. You know, when I was growing up, guys, I used to get hugs and spankings from the same guy. And I never got confused. Made perfect sense to me. Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Fear and awe. Psalm 33, 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope for His loving kindness. They wait, they rejoice, they trust, they hope. Fear and hope, fear and rejoicing. Fearing, fear and loving kindnesses of God all together. And again, Luke 12, 5. I warn you who to fear. Fear the one who, is, who after has, he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. If you go down two verses in verse 7, he says, by the way, God numbers the hairs on your head because you have great value to him. So he combines fearing him with the fact that he values you. See, all these things fit together. There's no incongruity. If there's anything that doesn't fit, God doesn't see it. It fits perfectly for Him. Psalm 103.13 Just as the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. You want His compassion? You better fear Him. Now, I tell you guys, we need to fear Him. Mark 9, 6, when he describes Jesus at the transfiguration, when the disciples saw him, three of them saw him in his glorified state, says this, they became terrified. Same word. John, in Revelation 1, 17, when he sees Jesus in heaven, says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. See, then we won't need to be told to fear him. We'll know it just by looking at him. It'll be a natural reaction. In fact, a guy 
Rudolf Otto studied all of the instances where men encountered, encountered God, and he said it could be the description would be they felt an overpowering, overwhelming sense of creatureliness. See, they realized they were powerless, finite, unworthy, and guilty when they were in his presence. Now, the definitions in the Old Testament, the word, when the word fear is used, it's the Hebrew word yira. And pro- who actually knows how you pronounce that? That's how I pronounce it. It means, surprisingly, to fear. To be frightened. To dread. To be terrified. In the New Testament, it's phobia, from which we get phobia. An irrational fear. It's to be frightened, to be alarmed, to be terrified, to be afraid. It's the word that is used in reaction to, to it's, it, as a reaction that would normally lead to flight, where you'd take off running. You'd be so scared. In Philippians 2.12, it's combined with trembling. In Acts 5.11, fear seized the whole church. They were seized with fear. John 20.19, they locked their doors for fear. Luke one twelve, they were gripped with fear. Luke eight thirty seven, they were overcome with fear. Acts seven thirty two, they shook with fear. I want to note, I personally have never run away or trembled in respect. And you haven't either. The word's clear. With fear you sense you're not in control of the interaction. It's different. You're in the presence of a powerful being. When you're in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis says, God's not safe even though he's good. Fear of God is a constant, sane, necessary ingredient in our relationship with God. That should naturally increase as we grow as Christians and learn more and more about him. You won't fear him less, you'll fear him more. It's not optional. It's not when all else fails. Fearing God increases our realization of how serious sin is. Proverbs 8.13 says, Fear the Lord is to hate evil. God hates sin and guarantees consequences for it. Without Christ, sin results in eternal damnation. With Christ, sin can result in loss of, of good things, of rewards. 1 John 2, 3 and 4 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Now, we're not going to pull that verse apart, but it ought to scare you. It's not in there by accident. Godly fear should motivate you to restraint and positive action. It should result in obedience as you think of how He reacts to it. We have to slow down and think about who we're dealing with when we deal with God. As Walt Hendrickson says, there can be no morality without authority. And there's no authority without fear. And there's no fear without accountability. And there's no accountability without consequences. God says there's going to be consequences. And I'm the one that's going to divvy them up. And we need to take it seriously. Without consequences, it's the ten suggestions. They're optional. 
But the interesting thing is that while worldly fear motivates us, if you read how what fear does for us in our relationship with God, it doesn't imprison us, it unchains us. It doesn't disharden us, it pushes us to love and good deeds. It doesn't sicken us, it strengthens our resolve against sin and to do what God says. It doesn't consume us, it consumes the sin that's in us. It doesn't send us fleeing from God, but fleeing towards Him. It clarifies that our relationship with Him is on His terms and His terms only. And requires unconditional surrender. You surrender. You got to come out of the cave with your hands up. There's no holding back. It's all or nothing. It keeps us from hurting ourselves, makes us careful, or as the Bible says, sober. That's safe. You know, many of you, I used to practice law. Most of you guys have probably been in a courtroom at some time. It's designed with a raised desk and the judge is sitting up on high. You've got to be quiet. It's got high ceilings, somber. There's a bailiff there. You know why? They want you scared. That guy behind me. I know all the judges down in Covington. But you know, when I walk in there, they can throw me in jail. In fact, last time I went in, had a, a guy was his campaign chairman. I mean, you grow up in a small town, there's some benefits. And this guy's up there, and I came there to support a guy who had a trial that day. And he looks at me, sees in the back, and he goes, does this to me. So everybody's real quiet in the courtroom. And I, and I walk up to the front, and he says, you know, I could throw you in jail for not wearing a tie. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, wearing a robe doesn't make you smart. <laughs> but I was, you know what? I didn't say it very loud. And then I went back, and I kept my mouth shut. I supported him because he's a good judge. He wasn't that he's a bad person. He's a good man. But he has authority. And he makes decisions. And he meets out senses. Therefore, when I was in there, I'm cautionary. I'm respectful. I'll whisper that, but I would never dare say it out loud. And, and uh, so it's, it's fear is sane. It's a sane part of our relationship. And you can't have a relationship with God if you don't have it. You don't fear God, you don't know God. It's that simple. But you've got to learn it by revelations. Deuteronomy 4.10 says, Let them hear my, hear my words so they may learn to fear me. In other words, if you listen to what I say, it's going to scare you. Guys, if you're not scared, go home tonight and read Deuteronomy 28. As God tells people, if you don't do what I tell you, one day... You're going, to lay, you're going to lay siege to your city and you're going to eat your own kids. Make you feel all nice, warm and fuzzy? You can't write that out of the Bible. It's in there. It's clear. Read about it. He did it. He did it when he brought Babylon. He did all, that, all of that chapter came true in spades. When he talks, he's not kidding. And you may not like it, that's too bad. The world may not like it. He doesn't care. He is who he is. Let's talk about God's goodness and fear. Romans 11, verse 22, says this. Behold then the goodness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity... But to you, God's kindness, 
if you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. That guy he was talking about in the Old Testament, same guy. He says, I cut them off, and I'll cut you off too. Now, what does that mean? I don't know, but I think I'm going to stay in His kindness. I think I'll just obey Him and I'll let somebody else find out. I know this. God needs some spin doctors. He needs somebody coming and saying, He didn't mean to say that about those eating your kids. Let me t- no, let me tell you, he's, you know, he, got, he, he got saved since then. And, you know, he got saved when Jesus came. No. You see, you don't dwell on God's goodness alone. You don't dwell on His severity alone. You have to understand that God's goodness includes and mandates His severity. By the way, I served. I had a good dad. But when, when I did something wrong, I didn't want to be around that guy. He scared me to death. Never was a message more needed. Men say they believe in God and they don't have a clue to what believing Him, what difference that makes in their life and what difference it better make. People seem to follow private religious hunches about God rather than know Him from His own words. They're in a panic to construct a God who will let them do what they want without consequences. So they ignore all the verses on fearing God, on His judgment, on His wrath, on His severity. And it they, they turns in, they have a God who's infinitely indulgent. Too kind, good and gentle, wouldn't hurt a fly to hold us accountable. He just loves us too much. J.I. Packer calls it Santa Claus theology. Where God's favor, as he put it, extends no less to those who disregard his commands than to those who keep them. Saint treats them the same. He said, people, they don't need to fear God or tremble at his word. That's Puritan and old-fashioned. How can truth be old-fashioned? I'll tell you an idea that's old-fashioned. Gravity, let's all get on the roof. Because that's kind of old. It's not going to change gravity. You can, you can decide what you want. It's not going to change gravity. Gravity, and you're not going to change God. Belief in a good God defined the way He's defined today came into vogue in this last century. It wasn't always around. And it led to something called the problem of evil. And they write all these books on it. I just read an article on the problem of evil. I mean, it's written all the time. That was not an issue before. It became the number one concern of Christian apologetics. Apologetics. How can a heavenly Santa Claus be seen in heartbreaking, destructive things like cruelty, adultery, cancer, war. They just, I mean, the only way to save him, if you have this liberal view of God, is to disassociate him from all of those things. Let alone acknowledge that he has control over the events that come into those people's lives. And that means they have to deny his omnipotence and his lordship. Two things he says. He has and exercises every day. He says, I do what I want on the earth. And he says, nothing comes into your life unless I want it to. He says, if you go through something that you didn't do to yourself, it came from me on purpose. That's what the Bible says. But if you if you believe in a God who's unbiblical, whose goodness is such that people get hurt, but it's not him, it's just sin in the world. It's Satan or it's mean people who are sinners. And he has nothing to do with it. But he can come make, 
He can somehow turn that, those chicken bones into chicken salad in your life. He'll make something out of it. Well, where was he when it happened to me? Well, the Bible doesn't tell you. He says, what do you mean where it was? I was right there. I wanted you to go through it. Now, you may not like it. You may not like the fact that God gives people cancer. That God kills people. But my Bible says one day he drowned everybody on earth. Except for one family. And he didn't just waterboard them. They drowned. Now, I mean, he's not, obviously, he's not embarrassed by it. And it doesn't make him not good. He, he did it because he was good. But guys, what happens is we end up living in a world that's out of control and anybody can hurt us. People can thwart God's will in my life. That's the only way you can disassociate him from those things. But the Bible doesn't. He says, when he, that stuff in Deuteronomy, when he's about to do it to Judah, he says, I'm telling you about it because I want you to know it's me. I want to get credit for it. I'm doing it. I told you I was doing it. You didn't believe me, and now you're going to find out. He doesn't need a spin doctor. He doesn't want one. He is who he is. Don't sugarcoat the, tr- sugarcoat the truth about God. Goodness is, he's a, tells us that God's admirable. He's honorable. He's praiseworthy. He has all the moral attributes and qualities that equal perfection, tr- which include truthfulness, justice, severity, purity, forbearance, all of that. See, he, the Bible paints a very complex picture of God with a lot of facets to, a character, to his character. He's not monodimensional. He's not simple. He's a complex being, just like most of us. We discipline our kids and we hug them. We lay down the law and we give mercy. Well, he does it perfectly. We just do it, as the Bible says, what, what seems good to us. Every time he does it, it is good for us. You see, goodness, if you think biblically, doesn't define God. God defines goodness. When the Bible says God is good... You want to know what good looks like? Read about God. He's not bound by Webster. Some dictionary guy came up with. He tells you what it means. And it includes all the things he says about himself. And he says we never have to fear his intentions. But he has the authority. And hard things happen. In Romans 11, severity means the withdrawal of his favor from those who spurn it. That means discipline to his children and punishment to the rest. He in, in Exodus 34, when he passes verse 6 on in front of Moses, it talks about his compassion and his goodness and abounding in loving kindnesses. And then it finishes with this. But he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He says and he guarantees that their sins have an effect for generations. Guys, Last time I checked, we're still suffering from what Adam did. Evidently, he wasn't kidding. Ask David. Read about his generations after him. David, you're forgiven for committing adultery and murder. But the baby's going to die, and you're going to have trouble in your family from here on out. And he had it in spades. Romans 11, 20 and 21. You stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Don't become arrogant or presumptuous or think you're guaranteed a pass. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, talking about Israel, He's not going to spare you. His kids don't get conceited. That's when Paul says, Oh, and I'd send the more that grace may increase. He says, That's a guy saying, oh, I'm going to do it anyway, but God will forgive me. He says, May it never be. What do you, you can't, his kids don't think like that. You don't give your life to Jesus and then think you can leverage it and do whatever you want. You could do whatever you want before you came to Jesus. You come to him because that didn't work. Hebrews 12 says he scourges every son. 1 Corinthians 10, James 1, Romans 5, Matthew 6 says he brings trials into our life. In this life, you're going to have suffering. How do I know that? Because who do you think is bringing it to you? It's for your good. We're concerned with happiness. God's concerned with character. He makes sure you reap what you sow in Galatians 6, 7. By the way, that's why we appreciate His blessings and His rewards. Because of the alternative. Our good God sends most men to hell for an eternity. And they deserve to go there. And He'll adjust what heaven is like for you. You'll suffer loss in heaven. Now you can read, say what you want, but those words have meaning. Suffer means conscious displeasure. Loss means you know what you're missing, what you could have had, and you don't have it for an eternity. And you can get rewards. There'll be consequences, though. Heaven and hell will not be uniform. It's going to be, hell is going to be different for everyone. Degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. If in hell, it's degrees of punishment. If it's in heaven, it's degrees of reward. And I don't know about you, but if my dad would have said, you want to come get a chocolate shake with the rest of the gang or spanking, you want to not get the chocolate shake with the rest of the gang, or would you rather get a spanking? I was, give me the spanking. I want the shake. So I don't know what he says, but when he says it is that my eyes not seen nor mine imagine what God has in store for us, I don't think I want to miss a single thing in heaven. Well, I better take what he says seriously. They didn't, and by the way, Israel didn't take him seriously. They did not believe he would do that. He'd been too good to them. And God's been so good to us that we just don't want to believe that he'll hold us accountable. But he says he will. By the way, if God were small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Of course, it's hard for us to figure out. He's uncontrollable. You can't mock him. You can't fake him out. You can't manipulate him. He's faithful, but he is totally unpredictable by us. Jesus, if he did one thing, he surprised him at every turn. What would Jesus do? The, the, the guys, they lived with him for three years. They never could guess what he was going to do next. And we think we know. I know this. God will respond the same way today that He did to sin in the Old Testament. It says that Hebrews 10 and 1 Corinthians 10 says this stuff was written in the Old Testament for you. Not They lived it. It was written down for you so you could learn the easy way because that's who you're dealing with. He didn't change. He can't change. He's perfect. He's the unchanging one. If He changes, we've had the schnitz. Because you can't rely on his promises. Hebrews 10, 29, 30 says this. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot? He's comparing it to the Old Testament. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded unclean the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, if he did that to them and you know what you know about what he did for you on the cross and you do that, it's going to be worse. It's one of the things he said to Judah. He said, Judah, Jerusalem, did you see what I did to the northern kingdom? And you still didn't learn? You still don't think I'll do that? You know, my dad was good. But I was scared to death of him. The man weighed 280. He had a belt that was eight feet long. I mean, you'd have been scared of him too. But I loved the guy and wanted a relationship with him. It wasn't because he was bad. When he had to pull that belt out, it was because I was bad. They had one time, we told the uh, sheriff's office, and St. Tammy, they could do a SWAT team practice in our office because we had this old department store. Our office is cubicle land. And they wanted to do a terrorist-type training in our office, so they wanted to bring the SWAT team. And so we said, yeah, absolutely, you can do it, you know, and you know, don't tear anything up. And Okay, great, great. So they, the day they're going to show up, they can say, we'll come around 5. We tell everybody, you know, now the SWAT team is going to come practice here, so... You know, see, you'll see him running around, but you might want to go home early because it'll be dis- it'll, it might be disruptive. And um, so I was working till five thirty or so, and I walk out of my office into the hallway, and I know they're going to be there. In fact, I, I know a bunch of those guys. I grew up with some of those guys and everything. And I step out into the hallway, and down the hall is one of these guys in all black. You know what they you you've seen them with a high powered weapon, talking really gruffly on his on his phone I sucked all the air out of me and I stepped back out of the hallway it scared me to death I thought I can't believe that's the way I was going to go to get out I mean they're just practicing Hank so I'm going to go use the other door so I just you know take a deep breath and I go down the hall real quickly go out the side door I'm walking to the parking lot to go to my car and we have this kind of a granite sign there and I just sort of step on the other side of it there's a guy there with a, another guy with a, the whole thing on. And I see him. I just do that. And then he says, scared, Hank? <laughs> Guys, they weren't working with loaded weapons. It was a training exercise. I knew they were there. I was scared to death. They were the good guys. I knew that's like that guy. It was, I, he, I never could find out who it was. Somebody I grew up with, I'm sure. But... Point is, I was scared. You know why? They're powerful. They got the automatic weapon and all that equipment on. That is scary. There's a reason they wear some of that stuff. The reason they talk that way. And I don't care what you know about them. They have power, and you feel powerless in your your little you know coat and tie and your briefcase, wet in your pants. It's, it's horrible. Guys, if we're that way there, think about the living God. It's his power that should scare us. His authority. When the Israelites told God that they'd obey him at Mount Sinai, in Deuteronomy 5.29, he said this, and I want you to get God's heart. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, 
that they might be well with them and with their sons forever. That's what he wants. But you know what? That's not what happened. And that's not what he did for him. In any case, God knows himself and he knows us and he loves us. And he says, fear is essential and reasonable if you're going to walk with me. So we need to get, get our arms around it. I want to cover God as our judge. Just, we'll take along with this. But it's important you get your arms around this. Because it's one of the main reasons we do fear Him. And I'm going to read a few verses. Psalm 75, 2. It is I who judge with equity. Verse 7. But God is the judge. Psalm 58, 11. Surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Psalm 50, verse 6. God Himself is judge. As First Peter said, as you, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves with fear during your time of your stay upon your earth. See, He's going to judge Christians. Not for heaven or hell, if you are a Christian. But this is incre- incredibly important for us to remember. And the New Testament talks about it a lot. In fact, judgments used over 300 times in the Bible referring to God's judgment of His people. Wrath 200 times and love 170. God loves us. He's our Father, but He'll judge us. And, we, and, we, and He is who He is. And we dare not try to make Him over to be therapeutic but not thundering. Friendly but not fearful. Magnanimous but not selective. Good-natured, but not holy. He's not a doty grandfather who lives to make us happy. He's sophisticated, congenial, and he demands nothing. Jeremiah warned in, in chapter 2, verse 13, My people committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold no water. What he says is you're making up a God that's not real. With attributes that aren't that aren't real. And that's what we're doing when we try to eliminate the truth of what he, who He is and how He feels about sin in response to it. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Guys, the New Testament's full of that kind of stuff. And we say, well, the Old Testament's different. Nahum said it rightly when he said that my God is a consuming fire full of wrath at all sin. He doesn't change, learn, or grow. He's perfect. You know, we can't really understand the concept of total authority, of transcendence, of being above and outside of creation. But that's who we're dealing with. And we may recall it the idea, but few things are stressed more strongly than the fact that God will judge the living and the dead those going to hell, those going to heaven. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? The Bible, in page after page of Bible history, tells us that God judged. He judged Adam and Eve, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Moses when he hit the rock the second time, Israel with the incident of the golden calf, Nadab and Abihu, Koran, Dathan and Abiram in the rebellion, Achan when he stole something after a battle with Jericho, 
or during it. Israel for unfaithfulness, Babylon, Assyria, Jews for rejecting Jesus, Ananias and Sapphira, Herod, the Corinthian Christians, all the prophets warned about inevitable judgment preaching to his people. God says he will bring every work to judgment. If anything, the cross is a symbol of judgment. Think of it, what Jesus had to go through so that we don't have to go through that. He's our Savior, but you know what the New Testament says? Jesus will be the one that will judge us, as well as the lost. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7-9 When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. God created hell and He tells us what it's like so we'll be scared and not want to go there. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11 says, For we miss all, Paul talking about himself and fellow believers, all people before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Paul says, Knowing I'm facing that, it scares me, and I do, and I do what he tells me. And you should too. The heart of justice, which expresses God's nature, is retribution. That's what it says Jesus is going to bring. He's going to deal out retribution. Render to men what they deserve. It's the essence of the judge's task. According to our works, your works and my works. Christians as well as non-Christians. Retribution is is an expression of the divine character, according to the Bible. It is an inescapable law of creation and a fact of life. We better get over it. And we better ponder it because over and over in the New Testament, it tells us to first John says you need to remember about that day so you don't shrink back in shame at his coming. All wrongs will be righted one day. Why do men see a God as judge unworthy him? We're unworthy of him. I'm going to tell you something. Would a God who didn't care about the difference between right and wrong be good and admirable between Hitler and Stalin and his own saints? Or between a Christian focused on temporal happiness and obtaining possessions and another Christian committed to laboring for the gospel wherever God sends him. Would a God who ignores that difference be praiseworthy and perfect? Not according to the Bible. He's rightly committed himself to judge. And that has to affect how we live. It must. It's a revelation of moral character in God. It imparts fear and gives morality significance. It shows that God's going to triumph one day. And that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, and finally. And Jesus will be the agent of judgment over and over again. The, the New Testament says, understand this, this. This suffering servant, he's going to be the one doing this. This is a picture of Jesus in the Bible. Walking, treading. His, he's wearing a white robe splattered with blood. Where have you been? I've been treading the wine presses of the wrath of God. Where's that spin doctor when you need him? He shouldn't let that one slip out. That must be... He, whoa. Where's all that love stuff? Make you feel warm? Same God. He's, he's not embarrassed about it. It's who He is. 
You see, what we don't realize and what we do reflects our heart. And He's judging our heart. For us, our justification by faith will shield us from condemnation. It'll shield us from banishment from God's presence, but it doesn't shield us from consequences. Forgiveness is not absence of consequences. The relationship with God will be intact. We will not get punished, but we'll receive according to what we've done. We'll be assessed as Christians and have our relationship with God, but we will forfeit things which others will enjoy because we were slack, sinful, or destructive. By the way, if we don't fear the judgment of God, why should the lost? They don't. They just write it out of the Bible. If they believe in the Bible. Now, there's some problem verses, and I just want to cover those and we'll start to wrap up. This is a good one. First John four eighteen, And um, I've heard this brought up when I've heard fear of God talked about in the past. Says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Well, there you have it. All those verses of it, you can blow them all off. All that stuff about fearing God, you know, this this nullifies all the rest of the Bible, right? We need to look. We do need to look at that. But I'm going to suggest to you, if there was ever a verse, if you use that to imply we don't need to fear God, this is the Gold standard for taking a verse out of context. It does not teach that fear and love are mutually exclusive. We've already seen they're not. God puts them together. In the context of 1 John, and I know some of you guys I know have studied 1 John, John is teaching professing Christians how to figure out whether their faith is real. It's about assurance of salvation. And in that, he gives several tests that we can look at our life. I love what Dave Reinstein calls it. He calls it, First John is the home pregnancy test for Christians. Is it real? And also, if you have a false teacher, how can you tell if they're for real or whether you should listen to them? So it's not about the fact of salvation. It's about whether you should feel saved. Assurance. That's what the book is about. And it contains a series of tests that we can use to either gain assurance or lose it, depending on how we stack up to determine whether our, con- our conversion was real or not. And I'm going to read some, some of these so you get a flavor of the book. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We say that we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. So if you walk in darkness, you go to hell. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. By this we know if we have come to know Him, if we keep his commandments, the one who says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He doesn't know God. He goes to hell. John first, John two, nine, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. This is, by the way, written by the apostle that Jesus loved. First John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I don't know about you, but I need to work on it. Some of this stuff. First John 2.23 Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. One of the tests is the fact of profession of faith. First John 3.7 Little children, make sure no one deceives you. 
The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Look at somebody, somebody's teaching something and it doesn't sound right. You should look at their life. First John 3.17 But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? First John 3.23 and 24 This is the commandment that we believe the name of his Son and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit he has given us. That one has two tests. How well are you loving? And the evidence of the Spirit within you, the sense, the, the assurance, the feeling that the Spirit will give you. In chapter 4, where that verse came from, about there is no fear in love, here's what it, here's what it says in verse 7. Believe, beloved, let, no one know, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. No one has beheld God at any time. If we have love for one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected. So he's saying... Evidence that you know God is the fact that you love one another. By this love is perfected us, and that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. That's verse 17, right in front of verse 18. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. So when He says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, He's saying the better you love, the less you have to be afraid of when the judgment comes. He's not talking about God's love for us, but the better we obey that command. It's like when my dad gave me a bunch of chores. If I did those chores, I wasn't afraid when he came home and inspected it. If I didn't do it, then I was afraid. That's the point of the verse. In the context, a better translation might be, or an accurate paraphrase would be, not a better translation. If you aren't obeying the commandments, you have a lot to fear. Because Jesus said, loving one another sums up all of the commandments. All the rest of them just show what it looks like in different circumstances. If you obey the speed limit, you don't have to worry about getting a ticket. We were talking about tickets. I know something about getting speed tickets. But once I slow down and I follow the law, I don't worry about it anymore. That's what John's trying to say. Martin Luther had a simple solution. Love God and fear God. Don't try to figure it out. Just do it. The only people argue, the only place people argue that fear and love don't go together is when they talk about God. Similarly, Romans 8.15 comes up sometimes. And it says, For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we call Abba Father. What it's talking about, the fear of slavery, is a reference to to what Satan produces. It talks about in Hebrews 2.15, when Jesus defeated Satan, who through fear of death kept men as slaves. So he's saying, you don't have that spirit from Satan anymore where you are slaves of his. You're freed from that. We've been adopted as sons. It does not mean you don't need to fear God. It's just saying you don't need to fear Satan anymore. And you don't need to fear death anymore. Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. It's talking about you won't fear men if I'm with you. 
And every one of those verses like that, that's what Jesus is clarifying. He's talking about you don't need to fear anything else. If I'm with you, I'm the 800-pound gorilla. You don't have to worry about anybody else. I'll keep you secure. You're safe from everything else, only never lose your fear of me. Everybody's looking for someone they can feel fearless with and comfortable with. Just don't pick God for that. The Bible says you want to be with Him, but you never lose your fear of Him. You can never be totally comfortable because He's God and you're His creature. You're a slave. He's given you His grace. He's adopted you as a son. But that should the, the, the change it brings about in you is the desire to do what He tells you to do. So don't pick that for God. Guys, let me just... A couple of, of quick comments on why do we struggle with it. And then we'll close out. Uh, first of all, some of this thing I've, I've shared with you. I mean, guys... That stuff's hard to swallow. You don't hear this on typical TV message. It is appalling to us that God sends people to hell. I guess that means the bar is closing, huh? We're, we're, tell, I swear we're wrapping up. People go to hell and they don't have any hope for a second chance. You go to heaven, God gives you rewards or He holds them back and you're aware of it and you live with it for eternity. Now, you're glad you're there. But you're not glad you didn't do what He told you when you had the chance. And so, as a result of our thinking about those things, Ken Boa says it creates an irresistible tendency toward destination optimism. We want to believe that... People actually say, when we get to heaven, what we're going to do with all the rewards, we're just going to cast them on the ground and it'll all be the same. Who doesn't say that in a... It, it, that's a scene that occurs at a moment in time in heaven when God's starting to judge the earth and all these elders cast these crowns down. Let's say everybody loses their... Everybody throws all the rewards away and it's all equal from then on. God says it's eternal. You're going to know it. I'm doing it. But people grab that description of an event when something very specific is going on in heaven and say, so it's all the same, so it doesn't matter. I can sin. I can blow off his, all of His commandments and I'm going to be okay. Heaven will be the same for me as everybody. That's how hard we'll, we'll reach to try to eliminate this accountability. People actually declare with sincerity that that Old Testament God was somehow different. When the whole Bible, premise of the Bible is that he, he doesn't change. He's writing that down so we'll learn the easy way. The beauty of the Old Testament is that you see God interact with men over a long period of time so you can understand how he responds. And so we say, yeah, we see that, but he's not going to respond like that anymore. What do you, that's not what the New Testament says. He says, I wrote this down so you know he will respond like that. That's what he's like. Um, there's also current, the next thing that's a problem is the current teaching in the church that God finds us attractive and values us not because of who He is, but because of how wonderful we are. The Bible says you're, you're a despicable sinner. I saved you because I'm good, because it came from me. You're not attractive. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. You don't deserve a relationship with me. That's the whole point. I'm good. I'm being gracious. You're, you're gracious 
a good example. Someone's gracious if I open the door for somebody that's coming through. I'm being gracious because they could be a mass murderer. It has nothing to do with them. I'm gracious. That's the point of grace. And yet we turn it around and say, he saved us because he really likes me. And the problem with that, aside from being unbiblical, is it leads us to think we have something he wants, something he needs. And he gives us leverage in relationship. He loves me so much. In fact, they spiritualize Song of Solomon to say that uh, the beloved is really us when Solomon's talking about his wife. And he says, well, no, that's really the church. Well, it doesn't say that. And so all of a sudden, God loves us and finds us absolutely beautiful and can't describe how beautiful and wonderful we are. That's not what the Bible says. He says, I saved you for my glory. So the Bible says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He loves us, but that word love, remember, doesn't mean attraction. It means I choose to do what's in your best interest because of who I am, regardless of who you are. That's why love's called unconditional. It has nothing to do with us. So don't buy into that lie. Last thing I'll mention is that we tend... God is so good to us. He really is in so many ways, guys. I mean, look what we all have. Look what He's done. We're here because He opened our eyes and gave us life. And sometimes it's hard. Our natural human tendency, rather than to be eternally grateful, is to take it for granted and become presumptuous. And start to say, well, you know, he'll let me away with this one because he loves me that much. And so we, we just we are we struggle with gratitude. Uh, a good example of it is Jesus when he tells when he heals a, a deaf guy. And he says, don't tell anybody to go tell everybody. Now, why do they do that? He don't don't tell it. He just healed a guy. Don't tell anybody. And they go out and tell. Why do they think they could do that? Because he's so good. Man, he's not going to do anything to us. I mean, he died for us on the cross. The Bible says, no, you got that wrong. If you get the benefit of that, you go to heaven. That's true. But if you think like that, you've got to review whether you understand who I am. And we have a relationship because if you know who I am, you know that's not true. That you need to be grateful. And you cannot, he will not relate to a willful or presumptuous person. The Bible teaches that over and over again. He who goes on sinning willfully after there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin. For a certain terrifying expectation of of um, terrifying expectation of judgment. Guys, God is good. God loves us. He's been incredibly gracious. He's provided a Savior for us. And He's promised us heaven. We don't do anything to get it. We just have to believe Him. But if you believe Him, it's not multiple choice. You have to believe the whole Bible. If you reject any of it, then you have to question whether you have rejected Him or you really have Him. Because He says, That's, my kids believe me. They hear my voice and they follow me. So let's go forth. Let's be grateful. Let's pursue rewards. Let's pursue God because He's so incredibly fascinating and He's so incredible. Let's look forward to heaven. Let's remember, before we get there, He's going to judge us. And so let's, be a, let's, let's keep God God and make us His servant, His creature.
Thanks a bunch. Refreshments up on the eighth floor. If you guys want to drop, relax, come hang out, have some snacks, please join us. Um, if not, we have breakfast tomorrow at 6:30. And uh, guys, if you have questions from what Hank just talked about, please remember we have the um, we have the card back box back there that we want you to uh, to write down for us. Okay. Have a good night, guys. <laughs>